Keep it easy. Please open up to Revelation chapter 1. The very last book in the Bible. There should be no problem with people finding where it is now. We'll be getting to the actual text tonight. The apocalypse of Jesus Christ. And we're not going to spend much time going through or going over those specific eschatological, which eschatology again is a study of the last things or study of end times. We're not going to go over those specific eschatological hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the way that we study the Bible. We're not going to be touching on those very much this evening uh, because we did that last week. That was the uh, prolegomena, which we talked about before, the words that go before. Tonight, though, as we look at just the first three verses, I hope what we'll see is that the whole book of Revelation is something that is worth going for. It is God's going through. It is God's message to his church, and it's good for us to know it. And that really is a, a good thing for us. It's not a book that's supposed to be an enigma or mysterious revelation or the apocalypse of Jesus Christ is meant to be understood, and it's a blessing for us to know it. So let's read the passage, and then you can follow along in your Bible with me. And then after we read, we'll pray. We'll ask the Lord to bless our time in his word. So the reading of God's word beginning at verse 1 in chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written, for the time is near. That ends the reading of God's holy and inspired and sufficient word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for letting us have time together to meet tonight, to open up your word. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would grant understanding to us. We don't think that we can rightly understand it in our own power, and our own strength. Certainly, just because it's English, it's been translated into that, we can understand the meaning of the words. But for us to really truly believe it and receive it, we know that we need your help. So please, God, guide us and direct us, help us to not be distracted, help us to listen well, Lord, free our minds from distractions and anything that might interfere with us knowing what is your revealed will. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Okay, so I realize that it is common for people to approach the book of Revelation with a lot of trepidation, with a lot of fear, because it really does come across as a foreign genre of literature. Not the introduction so much, not those first three verses that we read. That's, those verses are all, for the most part, kind of familiar, if you're familiar with Christianity at all and with what the Bible says. But much of what we talked about last week, um, how this book is a, is a letter, it's an apocalypse, and it's also a prophecy. And even that, it's a special genre of prophecy and apocalyptic literature. It's mostly, or it's better called prophetic apocalyptic literature or a prophetic apocalypse. And because it's this genre that most people really aren't familiar with when they read the Bible, it causes people to push back against it. Most of us aren't used to that kind of literature. I'm not used to that kind of literature myself even. And it ends up eliciting two bad responses from people. Most people are going to respond to it, of course, even if it's a bad response. Most people have thought about this book, even if they're not Christian, even if they're unbelievers, people have thought about what this book says and what it teaches. It even has a certain popularity that the rest of the Bible um, lacks for some reason. Even if you were to ask a random unbeliever, like, what's the last book in the Bible? They'd probably be able to tell you that it's Revelation. They most, Especially adults, they'd probably have that understanding that it's 
the Revelation is the last book in the Bible, and they would probably be able to give you some sort of a synopsis of what it is teaching. And that's perhaps because popular movies and even like politics and scientists are concerned with what we might call the last things. Or maybe sometimes people might even just want to call it the end of the world or the end of all things. People are fascinated with the end of the world in some way or another. People talk about Armageddon and the end times, whether it's a form of like a massive world war, and like some nuclear holocaust or something like that, or an invasion from a foreign army or an invasion from an alien army, maybe even too. I mean, we have UFOs that are apparently real now, right? According to 2020. I don't know about that one. Uh, or there's a giant meteor that's going to like end all of the world. People think about these types of things, something like that. It was only a few years ago when many people, mostly like atheists and agnostics really, thought they thought the whole world was going to end because of the Maya calendar came to an end. There was no more dates on the Mayan calendar, and they thought the, the whole uh, – I, I mean, you guys know that. Yeah, it was somewhat recent. My, so 2012 is somewhat recent, right? So people the – the Mayan calendar runs out of dates, and so people thought that meant the end of the world was coming, and really – they just ran out of space on the calendar. They're a failed civilization, a civilization that truthfully came under judgment from God and came to an end, and that was it. But people were all caught up in it, acting as if it predicted the end of the world. The unbelieving world has a fascination with these kinds of things. Now, of course, as Christians, we understand eschatology is not informing us only of future events, of things that have not yet happened, but also it's about... Um, things that are presently happening and informs the way that we live right right now. It's not just about what happens at the end, which again, for us as Christians, it's not just the end, but the beginning of the eternal age, right? When we say, you know, when we think about the world ending or something like that, or we think about properly what we say as Christians is Christ is going to return again. That's not the end of everything. That's the beginning of everything. That's the beginning of the new creation when the eternal age starts. That's different to what maybe, you know, you're the atheist friend or family member might say when they think of the end of everything, they just think it's going to all stop. But as Christians, when God redoes everything, uh, when, he, when in Second Peter, where he talks about um, the world coming under a renewal uh, through fire and brimstone, it's not the end. It's the beginning of, of the new creation and the eternal age. It's the consummation of the new creation, I should say. As Christians, we understand as well that eschatology then the study of the last things the study of christ's um, coming again it concerns things that we are dealing with right now as well too it speaks to how we should live today it's not just future even though we do confess at some point jesus is going to come again in the future he'll come at the time appointed for his glory to finally defeat death and he'll usher in and uh, consummate new creation and this is also impacted by the reality of us now being in the last days, what the Bible calls the, this time that we live in today, the time in between Jesus's ascension into, into glory and his second coming. That whole time span is called the last days. Um, and that's how, you know, so, so when we think of eschatology then, and we think of its effect and study the last days, well, we're living in the last days right now. It's not just 2021. But people have been in this biblically defined period since, again, the ascension of Christ into heaven. Both all the speculation concerning the events at the end of the world and with the interest in them through politics and entertainment, we have our work cut out for us when it comes to this book. And so we have many well-meaning believers who approach this book of the, of the Bible from two bad angles, two that I think we should avoid. 
on the one hand, you have the person who reads this book and they see the comments about dragons and wars and beasts that rise out of the ocean and creatures with many horns and some of the horns talk themselves and there's stars falling to earth, there's a bottomless pit, there's a mark of the beast. It seems like the stuff of myth and legend. And so people tend to avoid it and take a position that says, oh, well, we can't really understand this book because it's just too foreign. Again, it's that prophetic apocalypse. It's different than what we're used to. The other extreme, though, would be contrast that as the person who's obsessed with this book. Uh, they, they neglect the rest of God's other word, the 65 other books of the Bible. They hold up this book as the end-all answer to all of life's questions. And then they end up, you know, probably having a YouTube channel where they can speculate about all the things that's happening in the world presently as they compare it to current events. And they come up with specific texts in Revelation and they make charts and graphs. And they really just come up kind of crazy. But both of these extremes are bad and not what we're meant to get from the book. We end up missing the point when we do those types of things. Because notice how the book begins. It says it is the revelation or the apocalypsis in the Greek of Jesus Christ. It's about revealing. It's about making known. When you make something known, the intent is to clear things up, right? If you want to reveal something, you want people to know what it is that you're, what you're telling them. You don't call something a revelation or an apocalypsis if you tend to hide it. It's like the old uh, Scooby-Doo cartoons or that meme that circulates today, which has the bad guy with the mask on, and then Fred is holding the mask, and then on the bottom picture, he pulls it up to see who it really is. It's an unveiling. It's showing who it really is. It's, it's like that. This is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. It's a book that is meant to be understood specifically by God's people. If you, are God, if you are one of God's people today, you are meant to understand this book. More on that in a moment. Joel Beakey in his comment says this about the intent of the message given in Revelation. He says it was never meant to be an obscure or closed book. It's not meant to be enigmatic. It was written to be read and understood. And that is the essence of the meaning of the book or the intent of the book and many other commentaries as well. Beale, Osborne, Paul, they all say the same thing, that Revelation is a book that is meant to be understood and also embraced by the believer. We're supposed to embrace the things that this book is teaching us. And in doing so, it'll help us to live the Christian life. It'll help us to be guided in worship, how we worship the one true God, and then also how we live out our life day to day, wanting to please God against the different trials and difficulties that come to us in our day-to-day -day life. And the opening sentence of the book is very clear on its intent. It is the unveiling, not the veiling or the hiding, but the revealing of Jesus Christ. And remember the admonishment of 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture, that all scripture of which, of course, revelation is scripture. All scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for correction, for reproof, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Revelation is about making us complete and equipped for every good work. It is profitable. That's why I believe um, this book is so saturated with references from the Old Testament. Remember that from last week? That there's like, I think something like 405 verses in Revelation, but there's over 650 references and allusions to the Old Testament. This is supposed to be familiar to God's people. It's not supposed to be a mystery that is confusing. 
The problem, of course, is that not many of us know our Old Testament very well, and so there's a struggle there. Uh, Matthew Henry is a name that some of you may be familiar with. He's one of the most popular, um, or he has, one of the most popular commentaries on all of Scripture. He's a Puritan. He lived in the 18th century, or he, the very end of the 17th century, into the 18th century. He died in 1752, I believe. He was a pastor at a local church, and his commentary goes through every book of the Bible, uh, section by section or verse by verse, sometimes phrase by phrase and even word by word, depending on the the place in the Bible. But he, he exegetes the text, and he gives explanation for it. I mean, for you could just look it up online. It's an old book. But anytime you want to study the Bible, if you're having, if you're wondering like what a certain verse means, you could just Google that verse in Matthew Henry's name, and there'll be a link to his commentary at some point where he offers insight. And they're usually helpful and good. He's a Presbyterian, so there would be some disagreement, of course, but it's a valuable resource nonetheless. Definitely would help you in your times of private study. So uh, Matthew Henry, he had, when he was thinking about completing this big, giant work um, that if you look at it, I mean, I have to, in my office in multiple volumes. So the Bible is this thick and the common, his sets of commentaries end up being about this thick because he writes a lot about what God is trying to uh, communicate to his people through it. He, um, he actually didn't finish it himself. He died before it was all done. His friends compiled the last, uh, the last books of it from Romans to Revelation. But he had these principles that drove him in the process. Well, he died pretty young. He died, I think he was only like 52. He fell off a horse and uh, that was it. So it, times are different. <laughs> times are different, you know, than the 18th century than they are now. Um, you can still fall off a horse and die today. Don't get me wrong. Oh, I mean, yeah. yeah. But, but anyways, he had these six principles that drove him in, in doing this endeavor. And here's two of them. Okay. And think about these in light of Revelation as well. Number three was that divine revelation is not now to be found nor expected anywhere in scriptures of the Old and New Testament. And then number four, that the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments were purposely designed for our learning. Okay, we've already talked about that some already, that this is a book that we're supposed to know. It's to reveal, it's supposed to teach us something. God didn't just give us these books so for, for us to be perplexed, right? He's wanting to show forth his glory and his plan of redemption in the person of Christ. And then also, this book is divine revelation. It's in the Bible, so on principle, we believe that that's certainly the case, that it's that. It's that. But you'll see um, the second principle. Hey, what's up? <laughs> um, the second principle, this book is, is, again, it's purposely designed for our learning. Now, as a matter of fact, if the revelation of Jesus Christ in this book was meant to be confusing, if that was the intent, then we would be wasting our time to study it, right? We'd be foolish just to make effort in trying to understand what it meant if it was meant to be confusing, if it was meant to be an enigma. But thankfully, it's not that. Because, and we'll get to the point here about it being divine revelation in just a moment, but it's not, again, it's not meant to be confusing. Verse 1 is telling us that this is a book that is meant to be understood. And as Joel Beakey puts it, the Bible itself isn't written to satisfy the hunger of the human mind for knowledge and future events. And that's not why we come to this book. This book is not a book primarily about world events or current events, even though, of course, you know, it does offer insights about those things. And I talked about last time, this is a covenantal book about the Christ of the covenant, about the Redeemer who filled the covenant of grace and is sustaining his church through the ages until he comes again. 
this is a book about Jesus, a revealing of Jesus that is meant to encourage and to offer hope to Christians as they live through trials and as and also to warn us to not fall away and to make us be aware of judgment to come if we persist in unbelief and transgression, if we persist in sin, all the while reminding us of the covenant faithfulness and the promises of God at the same time. It's interesting, actually, when you think of the unity of the Bible in light of revelation of the revelation given of Jesus Christ given to us here in this uh, book that we have for us in our new series. The Bible has these like these bookend moments in it that show the continuity of God's plan of redemption and the working of his will uh, throughout human history. And so, for example, if you have Genesis 1 to 3, which is the creation of mankind and everything. Man is named uh, Adam. He's, there's a wife given to man. Her name is Eve. And because mankind is created and dependent upon God, he is in a covenant with God. It's necessary because man and God aren't on the same playing field. God is much greater than we are. And then God informs Adam of the terms of the covenant, which are to, uh, to fill the earth, to multiply, to have children, then to take dominion and to care for the garden, which is a type of temple. And God gives him a command to not eat from the tree of life. And if Adam, or the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and if Adam had obeyed, he would have lived in peace with God in all eternity and all of creation um, for all of eternity, I should say. He would be blessed. But if he disobeyed, he would be cursed. And he's the covenant head. He represented everyone that he represented. Or he represents all the other people that come from him. That's insane. Thank you. Yeah, I messed up right there. He represents all the people he represents. Man, Adam is brutal. So yes, Adam is the covenant head. He represents all other people. Uh, and of course we know he fails to obey. And God pronounces on him curses of the covenant. And he's put out of the garden. And God also at the time promises the hope of the gospel. That there would be a seed of the woman born. And that that person would crush the head of the enemy, a second Adam, as it were. And then you fast forward to the end of Deuteronomy for the first bookend, and God has a special people now. It's Israel, whom he calls his firstborn son in Exodus 4, just like Adam was the firstborn son. And he's given them a land in which they are to serve him, to have dominion and keep holy. And then Israel rehashes the covenant terms and vows to keep them at the end of Deuteronomy. It's only the nation of Israel in this covenant. It's not all the peoples of the earth. Whereas with Adam, he represented all the peoples of the earth. Israel is just the nation of Israel. Of course, when they get in the land, they don't fare any better than Adam did in the garden. Uh, so when those curses come once again, and God eventually puts them out. In Hosea 6, we read that Israel has transgressed the covenant just like Adam in the garden. But just like in the garden, God is still promising future blessing and hope and redemption with a hope for glory. And all throughout the prophets tell of a coming better Adam, the second Adam. In Hosea, he says that he will be, he will call his son out of Egypt. And we close that bookend and then open a new one in Matthew. Matthew relates the prophecy in Hosea 11 to, to be about Jesus. And then Jesus actually does live a holy life. That's Matthew 2, I think 15, where he quotes Hosea 11, 1. And Jesus is even brought out into the wilderness and he's tempted by the devil with for food and dominion, right? Remember he had been fasting for 40 days when the devil tempts him and the devil promises to give him all the kingdoms of the earth. He hasn't eaten for 40 days. It's the same type of things that God was promising to Adam when he was in the garden and he was uh, before the curse came. Jesus, of course, doesn't give in. He continues in holiness. He never once transgresses the law of God. 
Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, 22 are as clear as water in the sunlight. Jesus is a second Adam. He's a covenant head. He represents all those that are in him, all those that were chosen in him for the foundation of the world. And then he goes to the cross and he dies, not because he deserved death like Adam or Israel before him, but so that all of those who are represented by him, all of those who were chosen in him before the foundation of the world would be saved. That all the ones he represented would have life and be set free from the curse that was brought uh, brought into the world through Adam. And in accordance with the scriptures, he rises on the third day, and after a brief time, he ascends into heaven. And the kingdom of God, with the God-man, Jesus on the throne, has been inaugurated, but it still needs to be consummated. There are people chosen in Christ, people whose names are written in the book of life, who have yet to be saved. And so here we are living in a world as citizens of God's kingdom, united to Christ by grace through faith and the, the gift of faith that he gives us. And we are marching on and sojourning in this world, living for his glory and seeking to obey him and to make disciples until Christ comes again, which of course is how Revelation ends. That's how that bookend finishes. And it's really interesting, and this is on purpose by God to show the continuity of his glorious plan and will. But Revelation 22 uses language that sounds like a garden. There's a river of life. And there's, there's trees planted all alongside this river. And there's fruits on it as well. And these fruits are for the, for the people to eat. The leaves are for the healing of the nations. God is with mankind. And so it's the garden of Genesis 1 to 3, but much better. So we have these clear bookend uh, scenarios in Gen- from Genesis and some smaller typological ones throughout the rest of the books of the Bible leading up to the end of Revelation, the final bookend. But God is making all things new. And the revelation of Jesus Christ, which is what this whole book is about, culminates here. This is an important book, friends. We want to be whole Christians, do we not? We don't want to be just Christians who know a little bit of of this or that. We want to be whole, complete Christians, taking in all of what God's Word has to say. And so this book is important that we understand it rightly and that we read it and we give it the attention that it deserves. We don't want to treat it as some mysterious book that's impossible to understand. We also don't want to treat it as some end-all, a be-all that makes everything else not important. No, this book builds upon everything else that has been written already as well. Now think of how this book comes to us, how John received the message of this book. Again, it's divine revelation. Revelation 1.1 says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. So there's a progression here, one that's really interesting in light of how we think of the typical way that the Holy Spirit would carry along the authors of Scripture as they wrote, as, as Peter says. So we see that there is this revelation of Jesus Christ, by the way. The Greek is a, is a little tricky there. So when we see this phrase, the revelation of Jesus Christ, we should actually be thinking of two things. It's both the revelation about Jesus and it's the revelation from Jesus. It seems like both are intended. Uh, both are intended in the Greek uh, form of that word, where, we, where it's translated of in English. But let's keep reading. It says, which God, meaning the Father, gave him, Jesus, to show to his servants, servants, bond servants, really. It's the word for slaves in the Greek. It's talking about the church. 
It's talking about people who are in joyful servitude to the master, the master being Christ. He's the king. That's the word servant there in the ASV. It's doulos in the Greek. And he made it known by sending his angel to his bondservant, John. So the progression is God the Father to Jesus, who's the God-man, to the angel, to John. And then verse 2, this is to bring us back really to what was said at the start, the revelation of Jesus Christ, and then carry it further beyond that because John takes the message and it bears witness to the word of God. Again, this divine revelation. It's God's message. And then also to the testimony about or from Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So there's this mixture. And we'll see this as we work through the book. But there's inspiration as to what to write from God about the testimony concerning Jesus. And also about visions that were shown to him. And so we make our way through this book. You'll see a number of times John writes, he says, and then, and then he goes into a different vision. It's not uh, simply like chronological events that he's meaning to convey there. He's just saying, this is the next vision he saw. It's not meant to say this happens and this happens and this happens. He's just describing this is a new vision that he's getting at that point. The scene is changing. could be a vision that's happening before or after or at the same time as the previous vision. Uh, the context will determine what is actually happening at, the, at that point. So again, the message goes, God the Father, to Jesus, to an angel, to John, he bears witness to us, to the original audience, and then also to the church uh, every coming after the original audience. It's divine revelation. Mediated to John through an angel that ends up showing him things. An angel's a messenger, right? We read elsewhere that angel, angels were involved with the giving of the law. The giving of the law um, to Moses, we read that in Galatians 3 and Acts 2, and then also Hebrews 2, excuse me, Acts 7 and Hebrews 2. It's interesting, right? We'll circle back to that phrase, the things that must soon take place, because there's a similar statement at the end of verse 3. But this is a message to his bondservants, to these to believers, people who are trusting in Christ. He's wanting them and us to know these things. In that sense, it's just like all of Scripture, right? All of scripture, we understand typically, usually, uh, this is something that we're meant to understand. People do away with that when it comes to this book, unfortunately, but that's not the intent. Any person can understand it, the words on the page, that is, but it's when you've been given the mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians 2, and when you have been born from above, John 3, that you actually care about what the Bible says, right? Because how many of you are just sitting here tonight and you don't actually care what the Bible says? You're just, you're just here to be here. But you don't actually care what the Bible says. When you actually care about what the Bible says, what it means and how you want to apply it to your life, it's because you have the, you've been given the mind of Christ, because you've been born from above. And before that, it's just, it's just a regular old book to you. So there's more than just simple understanding going on here. There is belief. There's trust. And look at verse 3, because this is the purpose that we're to know from the unveiling of Christ especially. There is blessing in the unveiling of Christ. Blessed are those who read aloud. Blessed are those who hear. Blessed are those who keep. We sit at a very privileged period of history. When John wrote this letter from Patmos and then sent it off, not many people could read. Most people couldn't read. They could hear, of course, but even then, it's not like it was very safe to be a Christian. Granted, things were much worse under Nero decades before, and then under Ves 
uh, Vespasian, the temple was destroyed, and then Titus after him wasn't very friendly to Christians either. At the time that John is seeing this vision, uh, there's a, a man named Domitian is the emperor, and things were not easy for Christians under his reign by any means. After all, John is in exile while he's writing this. We'll get to that in verse uh, 9, chapter 1 here, just in, in maybe two weeks. Domitian let his brother Titus, the previous emperor, he let him die while he was sick. He had an opportunity to go have him be helped, but he knew that his brother was going to die, and if he's and if he died, then he would be able to be the new emperor. So rather than get his brother help, he let him pass on and, and die. He buried a woman who was in his courts alive because he didn't like something that she did. He buried her while she was still alive. He he had a man named. Elias Lamia killed for making some jokes about him, and he, he seduced his own niece. And when she got pregnant, he forced her to have an abortion, which ended up killing her as well. This guy Domitian is a, is a horrible person. James Hamilton said that he was a catastrophe of a man. He was an insecure man. Reports say that he was short, bald, and he had a protruding belly and spindling legs. So think of like the penguin in the old Michael Keaton Batman movies, which probably none of you have seen, except for seen. <laughs> you've seen. Think of that sort of a, a looking person. And it's under this man's rule that the emperor, emperor worship really took off in Rome. He, beginning really with Domitian, he would, he's responsible for having all the people call him Lord and God, Dominus, Dominus et Deus. And you'll see how some of that plays out as we move through the book. But my point is that it wasn't that easy when John wrote this letter for people even to be able to hear the words of this book, especially in comparison to us. I mean, you might be here tonight or you might have people coming to church on Sundays and they don't really actually love God. They just, this is just something that they do. But they have the freedom to hear without, you know, fear of being killed or of, or anything at all, really. There's not much um, persecution that comes in that way, especially if you want to just be a cultural, uninvolved Christian. But it's different when uh, this book was originally written. There's also a third element of it, the keeping of it, which that really gets tested out for the early church as well as the church throughout all the ages as well, too. Now, when the apostle mentions this book should be read, which, by the way, I make an effort this week to sit down and just read from Revelation 1 all the way to Revelation 22. It won't take you that much time, actually. It's about 30 minutes is what I think, I think it took me. Because the chapters aren't very long, and there's only 22 of them. You can read it all in one sitting. That's how the early churches would have received this letter, right? Uh, they wouldn't immediately go to verse-by-verse verse exposition. They would eventually do that. But when they first got it, they would read the whole thing. And it's intended to do that. And remember, um, the reader is also hearing, right? So when you think rightly about what it means to read or hear in this context, it's not just simply hearing that one might do is like when they watch a movie, for example, right? That's, that's different. Or when you read some other books, blessed means to have the favor of God. It's the covenantal love of God being for us in Christ. It is to know saving grace and to grow in that. And so it's the kind of hearing and reading then that one does when they have the eyes, when they have eyes to see and ears to hear. The Westminster Larger Catechism puts it well, and for the sake of time, I'll leave you with that. This is from question 157, which asks, how is the word of God to be read? 
And the answer is, the Holy Scriptures are to be read with a high and reverent esteem of them, with a firm persuasion that they are the very word of God, and that he only can enable us to understand them, with desire to know, believe, and obey the will of God revealed in them, with diligence and attention to the matter and scope of them, with meditation, application, self-denial, and prayer. That's a good definition of how we should read and hear the word of God. But there's more than just hearing and reading, right? There's also the keeping of them. So I'm reminded of what James says in James chapter 1, which is a couple pages to the left of your Bible. If you wanted to note that. 122 says this, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So you see the relation there, right? We, we can't fall short of doing, of keeping, or that which would bless us is forfeited. Reading, hearing, keeping, or doing, they're all related. If you truly hear and read, then you'll keep. What James says, if, if, you, if you hear or you read, but then you forget to do, then it's like you look into a mirror and you just, it didn't matter what the reflection that you saw. It was false. Joel Beek says, we keep the words of this prophecy by cherishing them as the word of God and applying them to ourselves and to our lives in such a way that as followers of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we look forward to his coming. We want to live as he would have us live till he comes. Well, is that what you want, friends? Is that what you desire? Do you want to keep the words of this prophecy in that way? Then this is a book that will bless you. We're blessed through Christ, through the prophecy of this letter. The counterpart of blessing is what? Curse. curse. It's curse. Those, in other words, then, those who do not keep the words of this book, those who then reject what God is offering to us through this book don't receive blessing. They receive curse. Believers who read and hear these words are promised blessing, but unbelievers are warned against the danger of despising and disregarding God's warnings. Why? Because the end is near. What we read in verse three, the time is near. Or as verse one puts it, because these are things that must soon take place. So we'll close with this. John here is pointing us back to Daniel 2. There in Daniel 2, uh, Daniel interprets a dream of, of the king that was about a giant statue that was made up of different materials. And it was to picture God's kingdom and, and also the rule of earthly uh, rulers in God's world. You probably remember that, some of you, right? That big giant statue with the different sections made out of different materials. You go check out Daniel 2 later if you, if you don't. But Daniel says this in verse 28. He says, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the vision of your head as you lay in the bed are these. And he goes on to explain what they all mean. So Daniel in the, has this vision of what will happen in the latter days. And John's point here is to say that these latter days are upon us. It's these last days. They're here now. Those promises in Daniel have come to pass, and they are in the process now uh, of happening and taking place because of the work of Jesus Christ. The time is short. 
these things must soon take place. Jesus himself, along with John the Baptist and the apostles, would, would teach the kingdom of God is at hand. Certainly this had meaning for the original audience, but we, just like them, are living in the last days. This is a message, this is a book that is meant to be understood, and it's for, and it's for Christ's blood-bought blood church. And with it, he means for us to read it, to hear it, and to keep it. Because he is, through this book, preparing us to meet him. That's what he's doing through this book. That's, that's all that is left, friends. There aren't any new prophets that are going to come and tell you what it is that God demands from you. They're not coming with new revelation. We aren't waiting for some fresh covenant to be made. The kingdom of God is here. We are citizens of it through faith. And God is even reigning over those who reject or disregard or ignore him to their peril. Those people aren't citizens and members of the household of God, and judgment awaits them if they don't repent. If that describes you, you need to repent. And God, through Christ, is calling out through the apocalypse of Jesus Christ for sinners to turn from their sins and embrace Christ in love. Because certainly, Christ is going to consummate his kingdom, meaning he will come again, and he's going to put all wrongs right. He has left us the whole Bible, of which Revelation especially gives us insight into that consummation of his kingdom, that we may be blessed. And may we be blessed as we read, hear, and keep all the words of this prophecy, all by grace, if he, if he may see it fit to his will. Let's pray. Gracious and holy God, we thank you for this, this book, Revelation. I'm excited to, to get into it more, Lord. And we pray that you give us understanding. Help us to not have a bad view of what the intent of the book is. We know that it's not meant to confuse us or be mysterious. Also, at the same time, let us not look into it so much where we try to create uh, new ideas from it. Instead, Lord, we pray that you would guide us with your spirit and help us to know all truth, all for Christ's glory's sake. Lord, I ask that you would cause there to be a great seriousness about the way that we think about you. Uh, it's so easy in our culture today to have little thoughts about you, the creator of the universe, the one who holds all things together. May that not be the case for anybody here in this room tonight. We pray that you would work salvation, the miracle of it, in the lives of everyone that is here. And for those who do already know you and are trusting you, we pray that you would embolden their faith, that they may not give in to any pressure from the world, so they may not look like the world at all, but they may instead hold the banner of Christ high and glorify you and whatever may come from that. We need you, Lord, and we give you all glory and praise in Christ's name. Amen. Any questions? Yeah, I know. He's it's in the Bible there is a guy who falls asleep and he falls out of a window and he dies. But then it was like time of miracles and he was able to bring him alive. You have a question? You forgot it? Okay. I have a question. Uh,